Um, the discussion of uh, the role of these green gases reminded me and what, it makes me want to transition to a discussion of the, the modeling you did for California. But why don't we start by having you describe basically what you were charged with doing in those two or three studies? Yes, we've done a number of these studies for the various California agencies on, you know, what does an economy-wide greenhouse gas reduction plan look like? And so we would typically will model 80% reductions below 1990 levels. And again, it's it's all the energy, you know, carbon from energy, and it's all the, the high global warming potential gases, and it's agricultural methane emissions, and it's all of the uh, inventory for uh, greenhouse gases for the state. Um, and the various agencies have, have all been interested. The, the Air Resources Board obviously has a regulatory uh, mandate to uh, publish regulations to meet the statutory mandate of 40% reductions below 1990 levels by 2030. The Energy Commission and the Public Utilities Commission have sponsored various studies looking beyond that. Uh, the, you know, the 80% reduction by 2050 isn't in regulation yet, um, but everyone is looking at that as their goal. Yeah, and I, what struck me was that if you start to look at, if you establish these goals for the entire economy, that has certain implications for the share of the burden that falls on the electricity sector, uh, and it also takes into consideration demand for some of these solutions in other parts of the economy that might make them more expensive or less available. So as I mentioned earlier, when we when we look at the picture, you know, when, when we look at the problem from an economy-wide perspective, um, we typically don't find that it makes sense to take the, the electric grid all the way to zero. There's a whole variety of measures we're looking at. Uh, from you know biomass-based liquid fuels for long-haul transport, uh, fuel cells for uh, large trucks or for light-duty vehicles, electrification of light-duty vehicles. Uh, are we switching from natural gas and buildings to electric heat pumps? Uh, a variety of industrial pro processes, some of which can be electrified, some of which not so much. Um, and what we typically find is that uh, the sort of mass-scale retail technologies like cars and, you know, furnaces, HVAC, um, it seems to make the most sense to convert those to electricity uh, and then serve the new electric demand with clean zero-carbon electricity sources. And then some of the harder-to-decarbonize sectors like airlines and long-haul transport and industry uh, leave those alone, allocate a larger share of the carbon budget to those sectors. Um, and I think serving the electric peak loads also falls into that category. So again, unless you have one of these other technologies like nuclear or very long duration storage or biomass-based gas, then uh, it becomes very expensive to serve the peak load with wind and solar. So we typically don't do that. We'll allocate, let's say, you know, five to 10 million metric tons of carbon to the electric sector. Yeah, which which in your 2019 study you described as you know essentially reducing 90 to 95 percent of emissions. Uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. So the California 20 uh, 1990 emissions level was I think 120 million tons in the electric sector, and we're squeezing that down to five to 10 million tons. So that's yeah between the 90 and 95 percent reduction in electric sector carbon emissions. Um, 
and that that seems to be kind of where the sweet spot is with respect to the least cost way to achieve the economy wide targets. And, and, it, and nevertheless, in that study as well, you saw a need for a fairly large amount of at least capacity for natural gas uh, because it's going to be needed sometimes, although not very often. And, and you also say that biogases have higher value uses in other sectors. Yeah, so so interesting. California is a summer peaking system now quite strongly. Um, you know, the very hot weather in July and August and September in the, in the desert climates drives the, the, the peak load to very high levels. What we find when we transform the grid in the way that uh, we've talked about is that we, we have a lot of capacity during those hours. Now we have a lot of solar production that's separated by only a few hours in time from when the peak load might be. So that problem, it looks like, can be solved with solar and batteries, uh, or largely solved, not entirely, but largely solved. The gas hardly runs at all in the summertime in these cases. What we find as it becomes the most constraining uh, time of the year is the, is the wintertime. And that's both in part because we're adding wintertime electric load with heat pumps, but it's also because we just have a lot less resource available if we're relying on solar and wind to, to provide a large share of the energy, uh, then, and especially in California, there's there's really not much additional potential to build wind. Uh, we either have to go offshore or we have to go out of state. And we haven't typically assumed in our studies that large, large amounts of those resources are available. And that's something we test kind of in sensitivities, but it's, it's not really on the radar. I mean, it's on the radar, but it's not typically assumed as the base case for these studies. So what we typically will assume as the base case is a lot of solar, a lot of batteries. And we find that the most constraining time of the year is a week-long cold weather snap, which in California means it might get into the 30s at night in, the, in Los Angeles and maybe maybe lower in the Central Valley. And people are turning on their heat pumps, and it's dark, and it's cold, and, and it's still. And um we have, a, we have a peak load problem, and what we find is that if you have 100 gigawatts of solar on the grid and it's not available in the, the quantities that it is in the summertime, that's a, it's a pretty large hole that we have to fill during those times when you have to fill it. So that's where you know we ended up in California with as much as 35 gigawatts of firm capacity required to keep the lights on during those events. So it's uh, it's you know maybe a shockingly large number of, of megawatts for, in terms of capacity. Uh, but again, it doesn't run very often, maybe only a 10 or 11% capacity factor throughout the year. Yeah, it was, it was shockingly to me knowing the size of the California market and how Californians feel about natural gas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, California at least uh, has the benefit of not having to add new gas. So I guess the good news in that sense is it doesn't look like new gas is needed in California, um, but it does mean retaining most, if not all, of the existing gas fleet really indefinitely to, to serve as a, as, a, as a backup to the wind and the sun. Would what you said about the Pacific Northwest hold true in California as well in that if biogases or green gases became affordable, they might be sort of gradually re substituted in uh, using existing infrastructure? 
Yeah, so this is um, this is a, this is a really interesting question. This this gets into a little bit of the, mo the most recent study we did with that, or we're still doing with the Energy Commission on building decarbonization. So let's assume that you have a certain amount of biomass available. The question becomes, what's the most optimal use of that resource? Um, if we just make the resource available to the grid at a certain cost, then at a, at a certain carbon level, the, the model picks it, right? If you're trying to go from 95 to 100% decarbonized, that's the resource it likes the best. But that's entirely without reference to what other uses there might be for that resource, limited resource, and other sectors of the economy. And when we run our economy-wide pathways model, it, it sure looks like industry is the, is the place where you'd want to use that uh, really precious, uh, constrained resource. It sure looks like you know there's there are other 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 sectors that are where the marginal cost of carbon reduction is much higher than it is in in the electric grid, uh, and so again maintaining that look that small amount of fossil gas in the electric grid it looks like it makes sense from an economy wide perspective. Okay, I know you've done modeling of de sort of decarbonization modeling in other places, including Hawaii and New York. Are there any particular conclusions from some of your other analyses that jump out at you that might be different from or we haven't mentioned yet when we talked about the Pacific Northwest and California? Um, with, yeah, with respect to California, I guess the other thing we haven't talked about too much is the role of the big grid. Um, we do find that the more, the, the, the larger the grid is, the easier it is to manage both the variability of the resources, the fluctuations in their output, but then also to uh, to procure a more diverse portfolio of resources. So if you think of the way that the Western system works today, and there's a lot of energy that comes from the Rocky Mountains to the coast in the form of coal, uh, and most of the flows are from east to west and, and north to south. So the surplus hydro and the and the coal tends to flow from the northwest and from the southwest into California. Um, but if you look at where the resources are being built today, a lot of the solar is going in in the southwest, which kind of reverses the conventional or the historical uh, power flows. And the coal on the eastern side of the system is being retired and, and replaced with wind. So the system is actually, it's fairly robust in terms of transmission capacity because this, the coal plants have been mine mouth coal in the Rockies. Uh, it has fantastic solar resources in the south. It has very good wind resources on the eastern slopes of the Rockies. There's a lot of hydro in the northwest with a lot of implicit storage capability uh, that can help to integrate it. And it's connected with a pretty robust transmission system. So the, the West is almost the perfect place to, to do this, to you know, to, to you know, go big on renewables and reduce use that as a tool to reduce carbon. Um, but it really requires much more coordination of procurement, of grid expansion, of operations than we have today. So we really find it's important to think about the you know expanding the role of either the ISO or another RTO in the West and, and thinking more. Yeah, there are people trying to make that happen, but there are you know institutional there's institutional friction there, I guess. Um, but it seems to be moving in that direction, however slowly. 
I think it is. Yeah, I think the EIM has been uh, well, the energy imbalance market, which is the the ISO is running, um, which has now been joined by a number of the utilities around the West, has really been a game changer. It's, everyone now understands the benefits that those types of arrangements provide, and uh, the trend is definitely towards greater and greater coordination across big regions. And uh, one of the in initiatives that's just getting started that we're uh, participating in in the Northwest is on resource adequacy. Uh, they're very concerned that because they're already in tight load resource balance today, uh, the coal resources are retiring. Um, so should they be looking at some form of capacity market or capacity sharing construct in the Northwest uh, that would kind of supplement or complement uh, the way that the utilities do capacity planning today. So that's another potential form of regional uh, cooperation that they're looking at. Interesting. Um, maybe, uh, maybe one more thing, David, that we haven't touched on too much. Sure. Uh, that I think is, you know, maybe not intuitive to everyone who hasn't, who hasn't thought through this question, but um, we are finding that the role of battery storage is, uh, is important, but uh, that battery storage by itself isn't a substitute for firm uh, capacity. And, you know, the reason for that is that um, the lithium ion and the, the, the battery technologies that are out there today are, are largely aimed at kind of a four hour, six hour, maybe an eight hour uh, time scale. And what we find is that once you add a certain number of those, then the next problem that you have to solve is longer. So if I add a certain amount of four hour batteries, the next problem might be a five-hour problem or a six-hour problem or a seven-hour problem. So you end up having to continually uh, increase the duration of the batteries in order to just get the same uh, amount of effective capacity out of the investment. And, and then eventually you get into a multi-day scenario. You get into a scenario where you, where you really need multiple days' worth of storage uh, in order for that storage to still be firm because sometimes there might not be enough energy uh, to charge the charge the, the uh, storage with during the time when you need it. So we typically there's a rule of thumb that we derived that seems to have held pretty true for just about every system we've looked at that you might be able to serve let's say 15 or 20 percent of your peak load with daily cycling batteries, uh, but then beyond that you need some other more firm source of capacity, and that's big part of the reason why we find the need for 30 gigawatts of capacity in California, even when we have 70 gigawatts of six-hour batteries, uh, is because the batteries just run out during the middle of the cold snap, and now you need something that you can turn on to make power. Yeah, you said earlier that you find in the historic record evidence of those kinds of long-term needs uh, it, almost everywhere you look. Yes. Very interesting. Well, um, Ernie, thanks so much for talking with us today. No, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me, David.